Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. The opioid epidemic has hit Northeast Ohio as hard as anywhere in our nation. At its peak in the second half of 2016, the opioid epidemic caused more than 130 Summit County residents per week to seek help after overdosing. My guest today, Bernard Packard, has witnessed the opioid crisis in our area from the front lines. He's a recovering addict himself. Bernard founded the Packard Institute in 2007 to help those struggling with addiction by connecting them with a recovery model that integrates family, community, and a tribe. So, Renard, welcome. Thank you, Greg. Good to be here. So, you've got just an extraordinary and very interesting past, which includes you were a skateboarder, a Olympic torchbearer, which that's incredible, through Akron, a drug addict, a paratrooper, a doctoral student, uh, a dedicated marathoner and triathlete, and finally, a licensed counselor. So tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, um, again, thank you for asking me to, to join Cover 2 today, Greg. It's a, um, it's a powerful asset to this community. But in terms of the recovery journey, you know, um, I, I can take it back to as of midnight tonight, that is to say um, the last day of, of July, uh, midnight tonight is August 1st, August 1st, 1992. I came to in a military hospital and, uh, um, you know, I wasn't the brightest guy w- walking down the road, but I knew something had to fundamentally change. I knew I was dreadfully ill. I had no idea what was going on, but through, uh, through the, um, the community of recovery, uh, they pulled me up and they brought me up. So what happened? What were you abusing? Uh, you might say I was a human garbage can. <laughs> I would ingest uh, uh, you know, anything I could pretty much get my hands on, but definitely wash it down with tons of alcohol and, and uh, again, uh, a very indiscriminate, uh, opportunistic um, consumer. <laughs> so now let me take it back just a little bit further. You were born in New York, and then yeah. somehow you ended up in California? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my dad was uh, sort of a free spirit. He is a, a free spirit, and he loaded up the loaded up the van, and, and, you know, in the 70s, we drifted across the country like, like nomads, and and he painted. He was a, a watercolorist, and, and we listened to, uh, to the doors on the 8-track. Wow. <laughs> like, you know, hmm. sort of ragamuffin band of hippie kids, you know, with scruffy hair. Bernard talked about becoming addicted as a young teen. I would have to say that I was chemically dependent by 14, hmm. certainly. Who was your and, drug of choice? Uh, you know, it, it bounced around. It truly did. Always alcohol. Always mm-hmm. alcohol. Mm-hmm. But there were other things that would come in and out of supply, you know, that I would um, latch on to. Uh, opiates eventually became, you know, the, just part and parcel to the whole you know, the whole visage, the whole construct I created around, the whole delusion I had created around myself. Did it ever progress to the needle? No, no. Um, uh, certainly, I, if I had access, you know, again, I was very indiscriminate 
Mm-hmm. And opportunistic as mm-hmm. to what I would use. Yeah. Next, Renard shared what it's like to hit rock bottom. Greg, I had to go crazy. I had to go quite insane. I mean, I you know, the, the irony is, you know, as I would later train as a psychologist, I never believed in mental health issues. I never believed in, in – I, I thought it was all – malingering is actually the, the, uh, the, the clinical term. I thought it was all gold-bricking. Mm. Oh, they're just playing it. Mm-hmm. Eventually, and it wasn't like I drank one drink too many or, or, or took one drug too many. It was a lifetime cumulative trauma mm-hmm. that finally pushed me over. And I went into a – at the time in the old DSM-3R, we called it a psychogenic fugue. Today we call it the dissociative disorder. I had a break with reality. I asked Renard what led him to start up the Packard Institute. Yeah, well um, – you know, I started in once out of the hospital. I actually started back in school and as an intern at uh, St. Thomas Hospital and uh, um, doing a graduate program in, in counseling. And uh, basically, I drank the Kool-Aid for the next 15 years. That is to say, I played off of a, of a treatment playbook mm-hmm. that is fundamentally structured to make people fail. So how so? In that we have people with a severity of a a multiplicity of problems come to us. And we put them through this acute treatment model. And then, well, the first thing we do is we we shove that pre-printed treatment plan across the desk and we tell them to sign it. You might not even want to bother to read it because it's in such a smarmy indecipherable counseling language. It's the same for everybody. Yeah. You know, slide the treatment plan across the desk. Mm-hmm. I drank the Kool-Aid for 15 years. And not to say that we didn't make a difference. We surely did. And Lord knows, I have generations of people whom I'm working with today as adults who started their journey with me you know, in the 90s, for instance. Mm-hmm. But I knew we were shooting very wide of our mark. And when they started dying... Then I made a decision. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to do shit that works, to quote a former president. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do shit that works. So I launched the Packard Institute. Now, right in that that, that nexus, that confluence of time, uh, there was William White writing and Philadelphia and the Connecticut model were emerging, a brain trust of recovery support providers. It seems spontaneous in the 20-aughts or whatever we call them. This rang true with me, so I immediately integrated. We did have clinical. I mean, we've always had you know a clinical level of care with the institute, but the recovery support services were the game changer, and we knew that intuitively, instinctively, and now the data is flowing in that as an agent of change, recovery supports, and more specifically, recovery coaching has no peer. Why is that? You know, uh, you know. Uh, the theorists have spoken to this from, from Carl Jung on and the wounded healer and, and um, Carl Rogers. Um, the healing is in the relationship. And I might add that it doesn't matter what relationship it is. It doesn't matter if it is a psychologist or a licensed counselor or a brownie troop leader. The healing is in the relationship just to have that level of connection 
that level of authentic connection. So, but you can't establish that relationship with just anybody. How do you match, um, or how does someone in recovery, better put, um, select the best recovery coach for them, for their requirements? That's actually a very good question. You know, and um, I'm here to tell you, although our model, the Connecticut model, it is very much, uh, it's an integrated model of the science of recovery coaching. Of course, now we have data, but it is also an art. Let's make no mistake. Much the same way big pharma is an art. Now you can sit down with your primary or your prescribing physician for seven minutes and they can tell you it's a science, but I would challenge that. I'm a little dubious. In any case, pretty much the same with that, 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 that visceral human enigmatic sense of connection. It is an art. You know, obviously there are some, some commonalities that you want to look for. And we do, we, we try to, we try to connect people with the most appropriate provider, or the most appropriate coach we can. And that's an art. So, um, you've been doing the recovery coach Academy for how long now? Well, I was among Ohio's first class in, in 07. Mm -hmm. And then first trainers, Ohio, state of Ohio's first trainers. Um, So I've been training for the state since it was a thing here Mm -hmm. in Ohio. Mm -hmm. The Recovery Coach Academy launched in May. And it's taking off. And with our thin stream of funding, thin and growing stream of funding from, you know, via the United Way, Mm -hmm. we've already graduated three classes. We have several already full classes waiting both here in Akron and uh, in Florida. On the Gulf Coast. So how many graduates so far? Let's see, 12 for class, 36, um, 36, 19 waiting for the August Academy, which actually starts Thursday. Awesome. And then another another 20 in Florida. So I want to dig into your experience a little bit more just to get your views on some things. You know, you um, someone is not going to go into recovery until they want. We can encourage them all day long, friends, family, what have you, but they have to make that decision. In the meantime, harm reduction comes into play. I want to talk through your thoughts on harm reduction. Um, Narcan, it's probably a no-brainer. Everybody should carry that, right? I gave mom uh, a supply this last week. Um, Her son um, and, and her sat in my office, and he had just been successfully discharged from treatment. And I gave him my speech, and uh, part of that is the most dangerous day in an addict's life is the day that they are successfully discharged from treatment. And 24 hours later, the kid was in the emergency room again with an overdose from fentanyl. Wow. He's at Midwest right now, and uh, we're getting ready to bring him back. So what about syringe exchange? You know, I'm all about... I have a billboard. We have a location in Highland Square, um, and we, volunteers, that is, at their own expense, erected a billboard out front, painted it, and constructed the billboard. Mm-hmm. It's an overdose death count billboard. Mm-hmm. And we stopped at 853. It was just too much paint yeah. to mm-hmm. update. Yeah. But I think of the 853 number that, that, that just resonates with me. I would much rather have 853 people on Suboxone or smoking pot mm-hmm. or using clean needles than, than having them dead. I would, I would trade, you know, some, some marijuana for those 853 lives. 
having broached that topic, what is your view on, on that, both medical as well as recreational? You know, um, well, personally, wouldn't touch this stuff myself, never cared for it. Philosophically, I'm with Bob Marley, man. Legalize it. Not only legalize marijuana, but legalize it all for crying out. Either it is a health challenge or it's not. There is no middle ground. What about safe injection facilities? Same, same. You know, we're talking about the health of our community now. Not only safe injection sites. And I understand there are some challenges. Look at San Francisco. You know, they have a whole host of challenges that's really affecting the quality of life of the community. But, uh, again, there are other models in Portugal and elsewhere that we can look at, some real success stories. So that brings me to legalized heroin. Legalize it all. Regulate. Tax. Control. Interesting. So um, how about medication-assisted treatment versus abstinence? A lot of people are really, you know, it seems like that's a kind of a pretty divisive uh, question and topic there. People are on one side or the other. Yeah, attitudes, you know, I'm happy to say just in our generation, attitudes are changing. Uh, they are changing. Even my attitude has changed. I have evolved. You know, I came into recovery with a very with a very uh, crusty, old-timer sort of uh, uh, culture. Mm-hmm. And they were very rigid and very black and white in their thinking. And I think that's very helpful for a lot of us for periods of time to, to be very, you know, uh, rigid of thought. But people evolve and have evolved. So you're for Matt? Very much so. Very much so. Um, Again, I would rather have them on Matt than on my billboard. Yeah. So give me your views on remote rehab versus local. You know, again, it's all about the connection. It's usually with our – with the people we work with, it is definitely combinations of both. I mean – there's at any one time there's going to be a half a dozen text threads, messenger threads, um, uh, face-to-face uh, community approaches, and we have the technology. I say let's use it. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of scary and it's new to a lot of people and it mm-hmm. takes a lot of training for some folks, but we have the technology. So um, when you send somebody away, though, they're going to build up their tribe, all their connections, and then if they come back. Right. when they come back. How do you deal with that? Well, that's a, a perfectly legitimate question in terms of uh, um, the successful discharge from, tre- tre- from treatment. Um, good way to yeah, put it. It's you know, it's, good way to couch it. It, it. it is all about the connection. And you, we all know about the rat experiment and, and, mm. and mm-hmm. those sort of environmental factors with regards to addiction. Yeah, you're referring to Rat Park. Right, Rat Park, yep. yes. Mm-hmm. But if you don't integrate your recovery from a community perspective and from a family perspective, you're going to miss your mark most of the time. This is the voice of experience. And when we bring people into our tribal connection, into our tribal circle, if they don't have family to participate, we're going to create family for them. To not do so will be to miss your mark. And that's hard-bitten experience. I'd like to say I thought that up. It is in the research, of course. Mm-hmm. But this has been our hard-bitten experience. So, And that's the thing that I kind of struggle with is the fact that why don't more uh, facilities, rehabs, uh, advise, you know, when, you know, 
mom and dad are sending Johnny out of the area to Florida or California or really wherever, why don't those, why don't they talk about that? Okay. You're at a fork in the road right here. You, either Johnny's going to live here indefinitely because he's going to start his recovery here, or you're going to have to do a reboot when he comes back, and you're going to need to, need to have a plan for both. The reality, Greg, and you may, the reality is when they are done billing you, they're done. It's over. In our current health care structure, when they are done billing you or figuring out how to bill you, they're done. So um, how do we fix that, Bernard? Recovery-oriented systems of care, a textured, layered wraparound of recovery support providers at varying levels, you know, and it integrates family, and it integrates career, meaning, and it integrates personal health, wellness, whatever that means. Now, I understand not everyone coming in to the healing circle are going to run 150 marathons or do Ironman. But you've got to find what gives your life meaning and balance and connection. So how do you do that with the participants in your program? Again, it's uh, our approach, and we, don't, and we very specifically do not use the word program. I do not. I, I, I've been in programs. I've been... I've been part of the program uh, Kool-Aid right. for 15 years. Well, what do you call it? We treat people as human beings. You know, the, what they teach in graduate school is you individualize the approach. So they teach that in graduate school, and then you get your, to your public agency, and you slide the pre-printed treatment plan across the desk. Mm-hmm. Individualize the approach. Treat people as human beings with very individual and specific needs. Okay. No program. So, um, all right. I want to I want to untangle from the semantics okay. for a second right. and, and talk <laughs> about identifying those things that they can connect with and get sure. them connected with those things. Yeah. And, and it's really down to the how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you how we do it. You know? That's that's uh, the question. Sure. Uh, you know we 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 cannot be all things to all people. Surely. Mm-hmm. You know it, that'd be nice to have that kind of those kinds of resources. But for, again, our demographic skews younger. These are the kids who are bullied. These are the punk rockers, multiple piercing and tattoos. These are the LGBT community. These are the people who have been marginalized in one way, you know, either economically or, or culturally through their lives. These are people who have endured any number of forms of trauma. That seems to be our, 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 our go-to um, in terms of bringing meaning Again, uh, I, I was the kid who was the last picked for the, for the sports team. You know, skateboarding. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, skateboarding was. You know, we we were on the other side of the gym. You know, hmm. uh, skateboarders were. It, it was a very rebel thing to do at the time. Yeah, but uh, by all rights, though, you always you seem to be very athletic. So I'm, I'm surprised. Yeah, and that is something actually I came to in the military. You know, and and getting up out of my bunk at, at five a.m. and and doing PT with the with the with the platoon, man. That you know that was very restorative. It was extremely healing for me. That was recovery. That was part of my recovery journey. It started in the United States military. That was my you know essentially my structural treatment, if you could call it such. Um, and we integrate that, and you know, uh, particularly young people. There is a, a measure of risk-taking of, of, of 
of challenge that has to happen for normal brain formation, for male brain formation and for female brain formation. Mm -hmm. You have to take risks. You have to light up those, you know, those, those light up that brain. You have to stimulate that brain development. As such, we are down rivers. We are kayaking centrally has become our brand. I mean, we, we kayak rivers across the eastern United States, and we are working our way west. Um, there is something so metaphorically perfect about being on a river. It is the metaphor for recovery. And when we take our, our, our souls down river, we do it as a metaphor for their own personal and spiritual journey. There will be rapids. So let's talk about some of the success stories that you've had. Yeah, um, well, you know, there, while there is no uh, – the definition of, suggest, uh, of, of, of success is, is pretty um, subjective, but <clears throat> there are so many pure moments of true redemption, you know, to, to even, even fathom. Um, one that just leapt to mind was a young guy. I had actually worked with him as a young teen – and I was out walking my dog, of all things, in the neighborhood in Highland Square. And Pi, my dog, our mascot, the Institute mascot, started barking at a dumpster. And like out of a comic book, up pops the kid out of the dumpster. You know, clear, disheveled, looking like a concentration camp victim, right? Mm. Um, and I asked him the one thing you probably shouldn't ask someone who was in who was psychotic or dissociating is, man, you know, what are you doing there? You know, yeah. <laughs> he didn't know. Well, you know, I'm moving my guitar case around and blah blah blah. So I got him out of the dumpster and I took him over to the, the local Chinese place and, and got him a meal. And uh, I mean, I, I could have burst into tears. Man, he looked like he was, you know, probably 90, 90 pounds soaking mm. wet. How old? At the time, I'm thinking he's about twenty, then mm. maybe twenty one. Mm-hmm. Um, we eventually got him into our recovery residence. He left his meal behind and, and uh, flitted off into the space. But uh, we eventually got him into our recovery residence. And, Greg, I'm here to tell you that it was not the treatment. It wasn't even the medications. It wasn't the, uh, the program that brought him back. It was the connection that he experienced in our tribe, in our community, that brought him back. And we, uh, we do community meals there. And he whipped out his, his you know, uh, banged up acoustic guitar one evening after dinner and around the table and he, he played a, a version of Pink Floyd's Breathe Breathe in the air mm-hmm. and sung it so beautifully it suddenly occurred to me that my mouth was hanging open and I looked around the dinner table and everyone else's mouth was hanging open it was like whoa man are you hearing this too because this is beautiful yeah. and he would later go on to struggle and, and, st- and still, you know, struggles mightily. Mm-hmm. But he's in recovery. He's yeah. on the journey. He's now a father. Oh. And his head stretches <laughs> gainful employment. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's all part of the journey. All of it. All the struggle is. So I want to come back to something and uh, talk just a little bit about sober homes. Um, you're involved with sober homes. Yes. And, yes. you know, in, in some states such as Florida, they seem to be really problematic. So, um, you know, just really anybody can open a sober sober home down there. You just mm-hmm. there's no oversight whatsoever. Just or buy here. a house um, or here. Um, so, what do you think should be done to um, to reel that in? And more importantly, what do people need to know when you know determining what the right fit for them for sober mm-hmm. homes? Great questions, all, Greg. 
you know, for all recovery services, do your due diligence. I mean, it's not that difficult anymore to Google, you know. It really isn't. You can you can kind of vet your your your, your people by community reputation. There is no regulatory oversight such that it can speak to quality of care at this time. There are a few um, terrific uh, regulatory, unofficial regulatory bodies, the National Association of Recovery Residences being one, and they provide wonderful uh, technical support, guidelines, and and, and help. You know, um, it can be uh, – there's some additional expense coming in, of course, but it can be money well spent. Um, in terms of our own recovery residences um, – we vowed early on to not rent rooms, and that's part of our, our initial speech is we do not very specifically rent rooms. However, if you want to be part of a tribe, again, a textured mosaic of recovery support, and if you want to take your recovery to the next level, then we can talk and talk about what that could look like. But to rent rooms to people without recovery support, that is asking for trouble, and believe me, you get it. And usually... Lately, the trouble includes blue corpses in your rooms, and I'll have none of it. Yeah. So here in our community, what would be the, uh, the recommendations that you would give to others out there in terms of how they can make a difference in the opioid epidemic? Well, there are so many ways to plug in. Um, I know volunteer coordination is, is a great challenge. Everybody has such unique gifts. And if you are a peer in recovery, uh, certainly recovery coaching is, in a, by definition, it is, as an agent of change, it has no peer. And Bill and Bob figured this out 83 years ago. But now we have some very, you know, some very data-backed resources. The Connecticut model, for instance, which is we feel the gold standard of recovery coaching. So recovery coaching would be one. In terms of uh, um, how can you make a difference, it's about changing the narrative. It's about reducing stigma and being that face of hope, that face of, of, of true redemption. To that extent, if there's a parade in Akron, Ohio, going down Main Street, you better believe we're going to be out there in my 1949 convertible Packard, front and center, representing the face of recovery, indeed the face of hope. That you and your team restore. The misfits. Yeah. The misfits, mm-hmm. we call them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a work in progress, and we, uh, we've we broken down in front of the grandstand more than once, actually. But, you know, <laughs> it's all uh, it's all part of the fun. Yes, it is the face of hope. You know, we have to be the face of recovery, and we have to uh, emerge into the sunlight from our basements, from our, our, our cloistered uh, – antiseptic environments. We have to be, you know, nobody can find, if you're anonymous, nobody can find you on the internet, right? I want to thank you for joining me today. What uh, what final qu- or thoughts do you have for our listeners, Bernard? Uh, you know, dovetailing what you earlier, um, Gandhi said it, uh, Gandhi said it best, the only master I serve is that still small voice deep within. So if you're struggling, if you're out there and, and if you're experiencing hurt, then reach out, you know, and listen for the pureness of that voice. That voice will come to you and you'll know what to do. You know, reach for, reach for your truth. There is hope. There's real meaningful, and I speak with almost 26 years under my belt. Tonight at midnight. Midnight tonight, brother. Thank you, Renard. We've been joined today Absolutely. by Renard Packard from the Packard Institute that he 
founded in 2007 to help those struggling with addiction by connecting them with a recovery model that integrates family, community, and the tribe. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.